0: Welcome to another episode of the Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Lalitha Trivikram. So, Dr. Trivikram is a board-certified internal medicine physician who graduated from Penn State College of Medicine and completed her postgrad training at the University of Michigan and New York Hospital Cornell. She has over 20 years of experience in outpatient, inpatient, and congregate care settings, including skilled nursing facilities, acute rehab facilities, and correctional facilities. Currently, she serves as medical director in the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, the jail for the city of Philadelphia, which has a daily census of around 4,500 citizens and a patient population numbering nearly 18,000 individuals annually. In the spring of 2020, she found herself stepping into the realm of public health when she was asked to be the lead physician in the COVID-19 response at the PDP. Under her leadership, the mortality rate from COVID has been one-tenth that of other jurisdictions in the region. She is a family friend, and I had the luxury of shattering her during my undergrad experience. And Lalitha is a stunningly good diagnostician and an amazing person all around. So the way I usually start these things Mm -hmm. is I read a couple statistics around internal medicine because... The whole point of this podcast is for medical students or people interested in medicine that don't really know about all these different specialties. What's internal medicine? What's orthopedic surgery? What's, what are all these things? And especially because some med students don't really get exposure to all these specialties. Like I've never had exposure to ENT or ortho or derm even really. So I think it's hopefully helpful to them. So let's go into the stats around internal medicine. So the median attending physician salary across America is 339000 The median IM salary is 260000 The average hours of attending in America is 51 hours, while internal medicine doctors across America work on average 55 hours per week. 59% of all physicians in America are happy, compared to 54% in internal medicine. 47% burnout on average, with burnout being 48% in internal medicine. 41% would choose the same career again when you're asked, would you choose the same career again? General physicians across America various specialties. 41% said, yeah, we'd pick our same specialty. Unfortunately, uh, and this, is, this makes me a little scared too, but not really, because it's, it's what I want to do. I want to go into internal medicine. I love internal medicine, but IM was the worst performer at this question, with only 25% saying they would pick the same specialty again. Step 2 score average is 246, with IM matching at 246. So let's get right into it. What is internal
1: medicine? Quite simply, it is adult medicine. Um, our patients uh, range in age from 17 to like 100. Wow. We deal with anything like simple colds, um, rashes, but our bread and butter, what we're actually trained to do is manage multiple complex chronic medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Internists will salivate if you give them a patient that has diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart disease, and throw in an autoimmune disorder. We love it. The longer the problem list, the better it is.
0: That's crazy. Autoimmune disease. I don't. I don't want to get involved with in autoimmune disease. I, for me, for me, when I start next year, just give me. I'd like to do work with maybe a lung infection, maybe pneumonia. I can. I think I can do that. You in the beginning, gotta start out slow. You gotta start out definitely slow, right? start out slow. Yes. So the next question I have for you is: Why did you pick internal medicine?
1: So when I first went to medical school. Yeah. I envisioned myself being an OBGYN. Yeah. So I chose that rotation as one of my first rotations third year. The residents that I worked with, however, were absolutely miserable. <laughs> and they made me miserable. So as soon as I finished that rotation, I ran. I was like, there's no way I'm doing OBGYN. Still working with my hands held some appeal to me. Mm. So I started looking at surgery and more specifically the surgical subspecialties. At that point, I kind of zeroed in on ENT simply because they seem to be the happiest guys. So I worked closely with an attending. I did a case review study. We published a paper about um, comparing open tracheostomy in the OR versus open tracheostomy at bedside Mm -hmm. versus percutaneous tracheostomy. We did all this work. I was headed down that path. Mm -hmm. My last rotation third year was internal medicine, and that was purposeful because I didn't think I would do any kind of general medicine. Mm-hmm. But it was during that rotation that the clouds opened, the sunlight came down, and I had this epiphany, ah, internal medicine is where I need to wow. be. So.
0: Was it with a patient? Was it a certain experience where this epiphany came? Or you're just like, I love
1: rounding. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I made it sound much more dramatic than it really uh-huh. was. Um, it was really a compilation of things that Got happened it. during my third year. Um, Some of the incidents that stick out in my mind, um, when I did my vascular surgery rotation, I was rounding with the team. We were talking about a patient who had just had above-the-knee amputation, Mm -hmm. and the surgeons were talking about the things the surgeons should talk about. What does the wound look like? Does he have a fever? Is he passing gas? That question. Always. Always that
0: question. (laughs)
1: And all I could do was think about his sugar, his AccuCheck is 300. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about that? And so I realized that as much as fixing a problem was appealing to me, I kind of wanted to prevent the problem. Um, And also, you know, given how much damage he already has, what can we do to prevent him from losing his eyesight, from losing his kidneys? Yeah. So that was instrumental. Um, The other... Incident that kind of was pivotal for me was when I did my nephrology rotation. My attending was one of those people that you just like admire. He was (laughs) incredibly brilliant. He could explain acid base and make it sound sexy. It was, he was just, I was enthralled, um, you know, listening to him talk about stuff. But it wasn't nephrology that I was enthralled by. It was the way he was a diagnostician. It was the way he spoke to patients. It's the way he extracted information. It's the way he connected all the dots and came up with this, like, you know, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're going to do. Um, And I realized that that is internal medicine. It's not nephrology. (laughs) So I was like, that's what I want to be. I want to be like that. And then finally, when I did my internal medicine rotation, I was out in the Cleveland Clinic and I worked closely with an intern. Now, interns typically are overworked, overwhelmed, but this woman was charismatic and happy. She was happy. Again, I think you're seeing a theme here Mm -hmm. about happiness for me. She really loved what she did. And despite all the hardship of being an intern, she was still content. And that really spoke, you know, spoke to me. Wow. So what was residency like? What was the workload
0: like? I we just leaned touched on it a little bit. Was it as crazy hard as everyone says it is?
1: So, I did my residency at a time before the reform in postgraduate medical training happened. So, and if I could say that my my training was traditional, it's yeah. about as traditional as it got. Okay. So, um, our days were 12-hour days. We started at 6 o'clock, pre-rounding, then rounding with the team. Then you break off to do the work of the day, um, writing your notes, checking the labs, checking on patients, running down x-ray reports, CT reports, you know, t- sometimes taking patients to their, um, to their diagnostic testing. Wow. Um, and then you'd wrap up your day by preparing your sign out and then giving it to the on-call team. So on-call was every fourth day. And on-call meant you were working for pretty much 36 hours because your day started at 6 a.m. and it pretty much ended around 6 p.m. the next day. Um, So we were on-call overnight. Um, We were responsible for anything that our colleagues signed out to us to do. We were responsible for any emergencies um, that came up overnight for anybody on our service. We were responsible for admissions from the ER, and those could be in the double digits sometimes because there was no cap. Uh, We didn't have a night float, so this is why everything fell on us. Um, And because I was at a tertiary care center, um, we were a magnet for the cases that nobody else could figure out. And they would typically arrive by helicopter, 2 o'clock in the morning. Perfect. Yep. Stack of records, yay high. And, you know, you would have to... (laughs) The irony of the thing is they're sending you to this hospital, right? Because this is where the experts are. Yeah. Lo and behold, they're landing the lap of an intern who really has no clue what they're doing. But those cases at two o'clock in the morning were some of the ones you learned the most from. Mm-hmm. Because you you had to go through the chart. You had to figure out, okay, what were the symptoms? What was going on? What was done? What worked? What didn't work? Um, Then you have to go see the patient, examine them, what's happening with them right now. And then you have to put together the story um, because that's what you're going to present to your attending. Mm. You have to read up on things so that you can explain why this was done, why that wasn't done, you know, what should we do next? And you have to come up with a plan. So it was an incredible learning experience, Mm. though going back to that time at 2 o'clock in the morning, overwhelmed and overworked, I didn't want to do it. No. Um, But having said that, you know, At the crack of dawn, when you see the light come through the window, it was just this overwhelming sense of who because my relief is coming in. (laughs) They're coming in at six. You made it. Yes, we made it. Um, So, you know, as difficult as it was, it was a great learning experience. It was a bonding experience because, you know, you were there with your fellow intern Mm -hmm. figuring it out. Um, You learn very quickly about how to be autonomous, you know, how to make those decisions that you have to make because nobody else is there. You learn from your mistakes, mm. you know. You learn like, okay, next time I need to do things differently or I need to pay attention to this. So it was difficult, but it was a wonderful learning experience.
0: With the change to training now, do you think that's a good thing or do you think that's a bad thing? Hmm. So <laughs> Tough question.
1: it is. Yeah. Um, You know, I understand why the changes Mm happen because mental health, you know, your ability to think properly after being up all Mm -hmm. night, those things are important. Did mistakes happen more often? Well, yeah, a big mistake happened and that's why, you know, these changes um, were put into place. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's something about going through that, you know, having that continuity over that 24 hour period, it it makes a difference. Um, And I think it, it gave you the sense of, you know, your responsibility carrying on, you know, right now, the way residency is, it's kind of fragmented, sorry, not residency, but when you're in your rotation, it's Mm -hmm. fragmented. You work from this time to this time. Yeah. Someone comes over to work this time and this time. Then you come back, you work this time to this time. There's something to be said about seeing something evolve mm-hmm. over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you kind of lose that a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's an important point. And did you see any differences in the residency This is a personal question. I'm I'm almost trying to get insight for myself between first year, second year, and third year. Could you just maybe give me a brief rundown of what those years are like?
1: You know, that's a really good question. Um, You know, intern year, you are pretty much the scut monkey. You know, you're (laughs) running around doing whatever anybody tells you to do. Um, And at the same time, you know, you you learn so much from that. And you usually learn from nurses because Mm. a lot of what you have to do is, you know, kind of at that very basic level. Yeah. As a second year and third year, now you're the senior, you know, now you are, you're the one scudding people, mm. but you're also the one who's responsible for your residence. So you kind of have to learn to manage a team. You know, if you don't have a strong intern, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Um, if you have a very strong intern, what can you give them to do? Um, and at the end of the day, you're the one who's responsible. So if something goes wrong with the patient, you have to be ready to answer to it. Mm. So you start getting that, that responsibility a little bit more in your second and third year.
0: Do the attendings look to you more, I guess, in the second and third year? I guess they do, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, and you are the teacher and mentor for your interns. So, yeah. you know, you can make or break an intern's experience, yeah. you know, so.
0: So for you, after residency, did you consider specializing
1: further or— actually absolutely not
0: no it never you knew this was
1: there was nothing that captured my imagination mm-hmm. um, to make me say that okay this is what yeah. I want to do for the rest of my life yeah. I like the variety of mm-hmm. internal medicine. So
0: the next question I have is, what was your experience like? Because you've done outpatient experience, you've done inpatient experience, uh, you've been, now you're in the, the uh, facilities as well, right? So can you tell me a little bit about your experience as an outpatient versus an inpatient doctor?
1: Absolutely. I would, um, I, I think by virtue of residency, you know, internists get a very strong training in um, inpatient medicine. Yeah. And that is crucial. Even if you decide to go into outpatient medicine, yeah. it's the kind of thing that it, it's difficult. So doing the most difficult thing first makes everything else seem a little easier. I see. Um, but also... Working in the hospital gives you a sense of what is routine, what is urgent, what is emergent. Because when you're in the office, you need to understand that. When do I need to send this person to the ER? When can this patient wait to see the consultant in two days? When when can they wait to see a consultant in a month? And when, you know, and how do I coordinate when they follow up with me is this something i need to see them for right away or Mm -hmm. something that can wait you know is this something that's going to spiral out of control yeah or is this something that you know we can manage slowly um you get that judgment that clinical judgment by being in inpatient medicine Mm -hmm. is um what my perspective has been um so outpatient medicine is a beast is a is a different beast. Um, There's a lot to learn there too. And it's how do you coordinate the care? Because Mm -hmm. when you're inpatient, everything's right there. All your resources are right there. As an outpatient, you have to figure out, you have to create relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, with physical therapists, with subspecialty consultants. Um, And so, you know, that is a different skill Mm -hmm. that you acquire when you do outpatient medicine.
0: Yeah. Did you like one more than the other?
1: I really liked inpatient medicine Uh, because I liked being there and kind of following things closely. Uh, But when I think when it came to lifestyle issues, inpatient medicine, um, you know, definitely takes more time. It's more unpredictable. And so I think for me, I naturally evolved into outpatient medicine yeah. once yeah. I started having my family.
0: Exactly. That mm-hmm. makes sense. That's what I and that's again, speaking about residency. I mean, I'm going through the application press right now and they always talk to us about these four plus two or three plus one weeks, which is you do the three weeks of inpatient and then one week of outpatient. And they say, you know, the more frequent you have the outpatient, it's better because you have more time to relax and it's a whole other it's a whole other thing. But so you were an inpatient doctor and then you went to an outpatient doctor for a while. And that, and now are you an inpatient doctor again?
1: Um, no, No, I would say I'm outpatient. Is it like
0: a little bit less outpatient, you know what I mean, or or not really?
1: It's a different kind of outpatient because my patients don't leave. (laughs) They're always there. So in a way, I have access to them all the time, like inpatient, but... It is mostly outpatient things because we can't manage certain stuff. Yeah, yeah,
0: I see. Can you tell me more about this job, this job you have now?
1: I always knew that I wanted to do something that had a bigger impact, Mm -hmm. like an impact on a population as opposed to individual patients. But I also knew that I needed to get experience with individual patients to understand what is the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think after 20 years of taking care of patients individually, I kind of evolved to a point where I wanted to learn something more. Mm -hmm. In addition, I always wanted to work with an underserved population. Um, So whether that was in the nursing home with geriatric patients, acute rehab, acute rehab is not really underserved, but, Mm. you know. Correctional medicine, definitely underserved. I was tiring of chasing dollar signs Mm -hmm. in outpatient medicine. You know, you document to code to bill, and you do all of that to get 10 more dollars for your visit. And I just didn't want to run that hamster wheel anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I... um, don't have to worry about coding and billing. I yeah. just do what I need to do to take care of people. And in my role as medical director, I definitely get that bigger picture yeah. about the population. What I had to do with COVID, I had to think of a population. You know, yeah. it wasn't just the one guy who came in with a cough and fever and has yeah. COVID. What do I need to do? What decisions do I need to make that are going to affect everybody yeah. in the public pop- uh, in the prison?
0: That's 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 really interesting, and it's a big. It seems like a, a crazy switch. Not a not a crazy in a bad way, but just a. I can't even imagine how to attack that as a different end because now you're taking on a bigger role, right? How is that different taking on a bigger role? Because now you're managing people. I'm assuming your week your days aren't. Probably not completely with patients anymore because you're now coordinating with people and coordinating all these things. Just generally, what is it like? Do you like it? Do you do you miss the outpatient?
1: What tell me? Absolutely. Uh, so um, to answer the big question, yeah. yeah, I do really enjoy it. That's great. Um, I do not get as much patient care, mm-hmm. and if there's anything I could say as a con, that is it. Yeah. Um, but I can live vicariously through my my uh, providers. Got it. Um, and that brings its own challenges because you'll have some providers who are really strong and very reliable yeah. and you have other providers where you kind of need to be on them. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've had to make decisions where the provider was not the right provider. And I've had mm-hmm. to make decisions about saying, you know, this isn't working out, wow. which is not something that... firing people. Yes. Ah, being confrontational, yeah. which is not my style at uh-huh. all. No. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. So, so that has been really... Um, it has led to professional growth for me. Um, Learning how to be a leader as a physician. It's not something you really learn in medical Mm -hmm. school. So it's what kind of leader do I want to be? How do I want to manage the group? Um, So all of these things, you know, come into play. Yeah, yeah. What does an
0: average day look like for you there?
1: So I start my day really early. Um, I get into work around 5.30. Um, And I do that purposefully because it's quiet. Uh Uh-huh. Um, I can think, I can, you know, look into things without the hubbub of uh-huh. everything that happens when day shift begins. It's also important for me to make sure I'm in touch with night shift because night shift is one of those shifts where people can, you know, they, f- they feel neglected. Mm-hmm. So I like to come in. I like to sit um, with the nurses. How was your night? What went, you know, what went wrong? What went well? You know, who are the patients I need to know about? Mm-hmm. Who did you send out? So that information is really important to gather um, from them. Um, then I start by looking through the COVID stuff. You know, mm-hmm. who are the new cases? Who are the pe- people leaving isolation? Mm-hmm. What are my quarantine units look mm-hmm. like? I spend some time doing that early in the morning when things are still quiet. Yeah. Then I go to looking at who left my facility and who returned. Um, to make sure that we have the information we need, you know, who went to the ER, what did they come, what orders did they come back, mm-hmm. did the orders get put in, kind of that general oversight
0: yeah.
1: Um, about, you know, what's happening with yeah. the patients. And then around seven o'clock, people start c- coming in. So the daily fires start okay. becoming an issue. And so now, you know, that's just completely unpredictable. You mm-hmm. don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen you don't know when you're going to get an emergency and we all have to respond to it. So the day, you know, continues on till about 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock yeah. when I'm wrapping up and heading home. Nice.
0: And so are there physicians working for you as well or is it mainly nurses and physicians' assistants and things like this?
1: We, I do have physicians. Yeah. More mid-levels. Yeah. Uh, but there are physicians there as well. Got
0: it. Okay. And just because there's a, I was reading through eighteen thousand individuals, forty five. So, are you located in a single prison, or are you lo- are you like being called to different? Pri- how does that work?
1: So there are um, five facilities yeah. on uh, on state road. Yeah. Um, my facility is the largest. It's the mail facility. And it's the intake facility. Got it. So we have twenty five hundred roughly mm-hmm. oh, um, wow, incarcerated that's... people yeah. um, at this time, and so. Um, it's a large group.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm going off the books here with a question. But how how have you seen uh, specifically the medical pathologies different here in the in incarcerated population as opposed to, you know, what I would see in the inpatient hospital or what you saw maybe in the outpatient
1: setting? I think that's a great question. I think this is what makes correctional medicine so interesting yeah. because you see extremes of disease that you don't see working in a suburban practice. Ooh where people are going for their routine care, people are coming to doctors because they have concerns, mm-hmm. um, they're getting testing, you know, whether it's necessary or not. Um, in the prison, there are people who don't prioritize health care or they don't feel comfortable, you know, with health care. They don't trust health care. Mm-hmm. Or they are so high that they are not following up on their medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Or their drug use has... You know, deteriorate their bodies so that they're twenty years old, but their organs look like they're eighty years Wild. old. Um, and so, I've seen things like hyperthyroidism lead to actual heart failure and patient ending up in the ICU, intubated, and just on the verge of life and death. I would never see that in in a in my outpatient yeah. practice. In some ways, it's almost like third world medicine because the kinds of things that come in, like that we had a guy come in with a chest wall sarcoma. And when I tell you it was ulcerated and open and fungating, it would have never gotten to that point in outpatient practice. But this man was homeless Mm -hmm. and he has psychiatric illness. And so he doesn't have the wherewithal to find the care that he needs. And there was nobody there to advocate for him. So he comes in, we examine him, we're like, oh my gosh, what is this? How long has it been there? Get him the care that he needs. Yeah. So it is absolutely fascinating. We have, you know, people who have um, life vests, um, AEDs, uh, sorry, not AEDs, but uh, defibrillators, mm-hmm. you know, peacemakers. We've had people who whose heart failure was so bad, they needed um, an LVAD. Um, and, wow. you know, we have extremely sick people um, that are in the prison.
0: And we've talked about this before. It sounds like it'd be a great opportunity for students. I mean.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I it's one of my crusades yeah. while I'm here yeah. to try and get more students yeah. into the prison because yeah. it's an untapped resource yeah. in terms of education. Um, and I think that way... If people know about it and learn about it, then they're going to come to correctional medicine. And this is the way we're going to improve the standard of care that we deliver in prisons by getting motivated, dedicated, and smart people in
0: there. I mean, having you as a teacher there would be absolutely fantastic. Maybe we could—we'll talk about this later. Maybe I can (laughs) send—because an Jefferson's amazing with these kind of things. And I'm sure Temple, but I don't have connections with Temple, right? Maybe after this we'll talk and I can send an email to Jefferson and I'll CC you and say— this is a great opportunity with a great teacher, so we'll, we'll get
1: into that. That would be awesome. How Let's about do it.
0: Resources in the in the hospital is it very easy to get X rays and CTs and send maybe not the classic CBC or BMP? Is it more difficult to get those things signed off on and approved and all
1: these kind of things? Actually, not really. Okay. Um, when I was contemplating taking the job at the prison, I made it a stipulation that I had to be able to practice medicine yeah. the way I wanted to. Yeah. And if there was going to be a lot of restrictions or if there was things I couldn't do, then I wasn't going to take the job. But in our prison, I can't say this for all prisons, but in our prison, um, the the partnership that we have with corrections um, and the... the um, chief of medical in corrections who helps us do what we need to do is extremely understanding of mm-hmm. what you know what it takes to deliver good care so you know we have research, we have access to all the best specialties with all the university hospitals mm-hmm. that we have here wow. we send patients to jefferson we send them to temple we send them to einstein penn everywhere. Wow. Um, if we need them to go to a consultant, we can get them there. If they need an MRI, we can get it there. If they have a specialty medication, we work through our pharmacy to get it for them. Wow. So there really is no limitations um, in that respect to yeah. what we can do.
0: And I wonder, and I, I'm trying to figure out a way to say, say this question without sound, sound, sounding bad, but I almost wonder if sometimes, especially for these s- severe psychiatric conditions, maybe it's sometimes good for these people to come to you, to come to this setting because, you know, they're under lock and key. You can watch them. You can give them the medications they need. And then beyond the psychiatric medications, you can maybe, hopefully not, but maybe because of these psychiatric conditions, they've accumulated these awful medical conditions throughout their body and maybe you can help. I don't know. It's just a random, random thought I had.
1: Um, you're, you're right. Um, that is how I looked at it for, um, when I first started as well. Yeah. But going through COVID, I realized that, you know, we have to balance that mm-hmm. with civil liberties. I see, and, yeah. you know, as much as we want to do, yeah. because now you're my captive audience, yeah. you don't always get that. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our patients with psychiatric illness, you'll try to treat them, but they'll, they'll say, I don't yeah. want to take medication. And, you know, if it's deemed that they're not a harm, then they don't get treated yeah. you know yeah. they 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 won't be prescribed the meds and so yeah. then their psychiatric illness kind of continues yeah. Yeah. so it, it like makes it, you it makes you realize some of the what's the word i want the drawbacks to the yeah. correctional system the way it is yeah
0: yeah No, that's interesting and it almost makes me come back to remembering those first medical ethics classes and i don't even know if i remember the four wait autonomy beneficence Non-malfeasance and justice. I did remember it. Okay. I remember that. But I think the autonomy one is something that always sticks in my head, and it's a really, really important one. Okay. Interesting question here. It's the $100 million question. So if I gave you $100 million tax-free, you can do whatever you want with it. The government's not going to come after you. Would you, A, continue working full-time, B, work part-time, C, switch careers entirely and become a javelin thrower or something like this. Or D, quit entirely and go live on a beach with your family or something like that.
1: So if you asked me this question five or ten years ago, yeah. I would have a different answer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but having worked in the prison, mm-hmm. um, I have a new perspective or a new, a deeper understanding of of um, systemic racism mm. and of racial disparity. Yeah. And it's not just from working with the patient demographic. It's also the staff demographic. Mm. Um, and I think because of that, I would not continue in clinical medicine. Mm. But I would try to have that impact that I want on a population, but on a social level. I see. So I think if I were I had the financial wherewithal yep. to stop working, I would explore what I might be able to do. To you know, eradicate or diminish some of the barriers that the population that I work with faces daily. I see.
0: I see. Um, not a javelin thrower, though. No one's picked javelin thrower. Not very thrower athletic. Yet. No. no, I'm sure you could do it. I believe it. I believe. <laughs> I, believe I know you. are You can. Do, I know you can do stuff, um, So the next question: Any particularly interesting stories from being a prison doctor, a doctor in a correctional facility?
1: You know, um, it's. There are so many. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think something that always kind of amuses me is, you know, we have a lot of guys who come in with gunshot wounds. Yes, of course. As you can imagine. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and the stuff we find in wounds is really, like, peculiar. Oh, boy. So
0: Should I put a squeamish disclaimer here or nothing? Not like, at all. Okay, good. Not at all.
1: Um, so, you know, we've it, it can be something as simple as, you know, finding... Gene like denim material Mm. in it because, you know, they get shot through their pants and it goes through. But I think one of the most interesting ones was we had a guy who had a wound that wasn't healing and he said, I can see something. I can see something. So here we're thinking maybe a bullet fragment or something like that. He's like, it's metal. So we take a look at it and sure enough, you can see the edge of something. It's kind of a little rippled. So we kind of dissect it, you know, to try and get it out, loosen it out. We start pulling at it and pull it out. It was a quarter, a quarter, a whole quarter. Oh, my God. So In his leg? In his leg, yes.
0: Is that lucky or is it heads up? I don't know.
1: (laughs) But it's fascinating because what happened is the guy who shot him kind of shot him accidentally. The gun was in his pocket. So when it went through, I think it brought along whatever change he may have had and it lodged it in his leg. So I was like... I can't even believe these things happen. Brought the quarter. It brought the quarter. That's insane.
0: Yeah. So you're doing, but and another interesting, thing, you're you're not just doing, you're doing like procedures there as well. You're di- you're dissecting out bullets and
1: simple procedures. Yeah. yeah. Simple things. Um. You know, we can splint fractures. Yeah. Uh. You know, we can I and D abscesses. You know. Um. There's there's uh, there's a small number of things yeah. that we can do there just
0: and just logistically because I'm interested to so was this were these were these uh, Inmates were these who Who was the person shot in the in the leg? It was an inmate an inmate. Okay, mm-hmm. and but the inmates in the fa- like in the prison cell or in the facility, right? Correct. Where does the gun come from?
1: So this was prior to incarceration at some oh, point he was shot Okay, he had this wound. Okay. It's not getting better. It's Got not it. healing. I come to medical we start looking see, at it. I see. So he was he was put through the process of
0: being incarcerated, all with this quarter in his leg. Yes, yes. And he just decided later to you know, hey guys, I got a quarter in my leg. Can you do something about it? Well,
1: you know, the thing is, the body starts rejecting it. Uh-huh. So it may not have been anything discernible before, but it starts working its way out, uh-huh. and that's when he realized, hey, something's in my hey, leg. There's a
0: quarter in my leg. Oh my <laughs>
1: there's God. something in my leg.
0: That's insane. So, so. So people uh I guess they they get incarcerated they, they're, and they just I'm just wondering how he got to the prison, so he was i guess he was in, in involved in some kind of this shooting thing in the general public, and then the police bring him to the prison
1: yes, so you know when he got shot, i'm not sure yeah. timeline wise yeah. it could have happened a couple of months ago, oh, and he never took care I of it see. right okay we do have guys though who uh, who have suffered acute trauma, yeah. Acute gunshot wounds, yeah. um, you know, have to have surgery because of damage from gunshot yeah. wounds. We had this one guy who was shot. The bullet entered in, the, you know, in the back, like yeah. by his shoulder yeah. and exited out of his chest anteriorly. Yeah. It went straight through his mediastinum and did not touch a single vital organ or wow. um, um, the aorta, vena cava, nothing. I don't know how that bullet managed to like avoid all those things. And not
0: he was fine. There's no like And then
1: he came, yeah, came to yeah. us. Entry wound, exit wound, nothing.
0: I almost cuz I remember the one things I remember from medicine in school so far, I should remember a lot, I hope, is the air. Was there no air in the mediastinum or anything like that? Nothing
1: that, that was problematic yeah. like you, you didn't lacerate the lungs yeah. nothing so
0: and I guess the reason you worry about air in the, and correct me if I'm wrong here I guess the reason you worry about air in the mediastinum is you're worried it's leaking from some major internal organ right exactly if someone just injected some air in you it's not it's not going to be anything wrong so working in a correctional facility working in a prison this is again we're off the books here a little bit have you ever been afraid or scared or kind of worried for your safety
1: I haven't personally. Yeah. Um, I think because in the re- in the role that I play, yeah. if I'm seeing patients, there's usually correctional support close by. Okay. But nursing staff, I think, are at a higher risk mm-hmm. because they go up onto the unit more often. They are often delivering care at cell side. Um, you know, so they are definitely um, more susceptible. Yeah. Yeah. if it's going to happen that, that makes sense
0: and do you think you're busier now uh, as a as, as in this position as opposed to when you're an outpatient doctor or is it kind of the same
1: I think it's a different kind of busy okay um you know right now I'm always kind of fretting about what do I not know that's mm-hmm. that's in the prison yeah. you know um and trying to make sure I can follow up on all the things that I need to follow up on. Whereas an outpatient, you know, the busyness came from seeing patients every 15 yeah, minutes yeah. Um, and trying to stay on schedule. Yeah. So it's different. You're
0: in kind of high alert mode. Yes. The, I see. I see. And I also want to touch on COVID because I think you had a great impact on the prison just by the statistic you told me. What – uh what was prison life like during COVID? Were there, I know you were telling me there's kind of quarantine zones and was there a kind of pathway that you go through when someone tests positive as COVID? I'm just interesting the way, interested in the way the prison was actually laid out during kind of, I guess, the the, the high points of COVID.
1: So... We we quickly implemented, you know, places for isolation uh-huh. when we had positive cases and we had to determine what was, what were we going to do and when did we impose quarantine and what was quarantine going to look like. And we've gone through many iterations of this I since see. it started Got because it. our guidance came from the CDC and mm-hmm. every time the CDC made modifications— then you we made, made modif- modifications. Yeah. So, you know, when we first started, we then there was a dearth of testing material. Mm-hmm. You know, we could only test symptomatic people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would find someone with symptoms. We would test them. They test positive, send them to isolation, quarantine the unit, and then watch, you know, monitor, check people daily. Are you developing symptoms? Mm-hmm. As more testing became available, we did a lot more routine screening. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that unit was identified with a positive case, now we're testing everybody on the unit. Mm-hmm. And we're testing them like every seven days wow. to ca- to capture new cases yeah. and bring them out. And then, you know, now we're getting to another stage. The CDC has just put out more uh, recommendations uh-huh. and modifications. And we're looking to hopefully loosen up some of the things yeah. that we were doing. Yeah. but. I think what was so incredible to me is when COVID first started and everything shut down. Yeah. The prison shut down. We Mm. literally had people in their cells for like 23 hours a day, you know, because we were afraid, as was the whole world, about what is this going to be? So, you know, we did everything to minimize the transmission Mm -hmm. that is so possible in a congregate setting. I mean,
0: especially in that Senate, right? it's
1: Yep. And, you know, and what we saw is deterioration in people's mental health. Mm. You know, you can't lock people up that way. So then the problem, the challenge was how do we keep people healthy and safe without locking them up? And you just realized that you had to allow for some. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be some transmission that's going to happen. You try to minimize it by masks and face and cohorting, you know, when people are out of the cell. Uh, but it's difficult. It's yeah. very difficult no, I, to maintain those things.
0: I can only imagine. What was the? What were the mental changes you saw? Were people more depressed, more anxious?
1: Absolutely, there was yeah. more depression. There was more anxiety. It was just the fact that you know you're in a cell, yeah. um, and there's no other exposure, yeah. you know, you have no other stimulation. So, you know, any of the things that you have going on in your head just mm-hmm. become magnified.
0: And how did you see it? Did they come, did they specifically complain to you? Did they complain to the nurses who would just tell you? Did more things
1: happen? More things happened. More
0: things happened. More things okay. happened.
1: Yeah. Just more violence, oh. um, you know, more, um, more uprisings. Wow. Um, so, yeah. What happens in an, what's an uprising? An uprising is when a group of um, inmates kind of take control of their unit, um, you know, so you can just imagine if there's like 65 inmates on a unit, yeah. that if one of them kind of got an idea and was able to convince the others, you know, to kind of go along with it, mm-hmm. they could do a lot of damage, yeah. right? They can, they can really have an impact, so you know if if they have to go back in their cell because now their turn yeah. to be out is finished yeah. and they don't want to, you know they can make a statement um, in terms of you know their resistance to going back into the cell.
0: So and again, ignore. Please forgive my ignorance here, but I'm picturing uh, the the movie scenes of the cafeteria in the middle of everything like that, and then they say, "Lock, you guys got to go back to your cells, guys, girls, anything," uh, and then. They just say, no, we're not going back to our cells. Do they start fighting other people? Do they fight the guards?
1: They may. Sometimes they'll just resist going in. Yeah. Um, sometimes they will start fighting. Um, sometimes they may start damaging, you know, destroying Stuff. property. Um, it all depends on, you know, what What's they happening. feel is going to be. And then is there effective?
0: a lockdown at that, that point? At you, that
1: point, there will be a lockdown. And yep. what does that mean?
0: Everyone stays in their cells? These, this Everything, the doors close?
1: Not quite so dramatically, okay. but they'll call for backup. I see. More officers will come. Uh-huh. You know, they'll get a handle on the situation. Um, you know, they will find people who may be injured, get them to medical. Everyone else is in their cells. You know, doors are locked until, you know, they can get everybody to kind of calm down. Yeah.
0: And you saw an increased frequency of this during, when the when the measures were kind of at the top, 23 hours a day in the...
1: In Absolutely. The yeah. Absolutely. How... F- how
0: often I'm just so curious about this. How often does this happen? Now, is this kind of a once a month event? Is this a once every 6 months event?
1: Um, it still happens to some degree, yeah. but they have a lot more movement allowed. They have a lot more liberties allowed, you know, they can get back to some activities yeah. that they're they they uh, weren't able to do at the mm-hmm. height of COVID. Now they can do, they can have visitors back. Yeah. They're in touch with their family. Wow. So all the things that we, you know, we need in our lives to have, yeah. you know, feel like purposeful and feel human. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, feel human. Um, you know, once they got those back, then it's it's not as much of a problem. That's good.
0: That's, 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 that's nice to hear, but that's crazy. I just don't think, I think of these things in the movies and not, not real life, but that's, so do you, do they have, um, like regular, do they like have healthy well visits as well? Is that something that the prisons
1: offer and things like that too? Absolutely. So my team is comprised of a triage provider who's there for the emergencies, for the walk-ins, for the acute, kind of an urgent care position, right? Um, if there's a stretcher call, which means the inmate cannot come down, or I should say the incarcerated person yes. cannot come down. Are you not, to I, this is, I
0: don't know, incarcerated person is, is a better thing to the say? Correct. They're, got term, it. Okay, apparently. got it. Got it. Yes.
1: Um, so, yes, the incarcerated person um, is brought cannot come to medical of their own accord. I see. Then nursing staff will go up with the emergency bag and a stretcher, um, assess the patient. Is it emergent enough that we need to deliver care here? Otherwise, bring him down to medical. So this is what the triage provider will take care of. I see. But I do have chronic care providers. Mm -hmm. So we have three providers that are doing the health maintenance, that are managing the chronic medical problems. Mm -hmm. So
0: so that so do they do the do the. Oh, what's the pro I was gonna say inmates? What do you meant to say the
1: incarcerated persons? Incarcerated
0: persons. Do the incarcerated persons do they schedule appointments kind of thing? Are they or how does it work? So
1: they don't schedule appointments, but we have them scheduled. So I for see. instance, if someone comes in at intake and yeah. says, I have diabetes and hypertension, um, they're automatically scheduled for a initial chronic care visit in a month.
0: I see. Okay.
1: Um and then every three months thereafter, unless it's decided that their asthma is pretty much well-controlled, yeah. and maybe they'll be seen every six months. I see. And how does—I'm
0: just so fat. How does the the management of prescription medication work in the prison? Because I can imagine if—maybe an inhaler is not a big deal, but if someone has— I don't know, maybe an anti-anxiety drug or something like that. How is the distribution and kind of are the pa- are the are the incarcerated persons allowed to hold these medications in the in their cells?
1: So some medication they can. Okay. Um, there is a list of medications that they cannot. Got it. Um, so, for instance, something like FloNase that comes in a glass bottle. Yeah. They cannot. Ha- they cannot have that because of the glass bottle. Because of the glass, um, nitro is also in a glass bottle, so they can't keep that with them. So it's a challenge. If someone comes in needing nitro for their stable angina, yeah. how do we get it to them? Yeah. Something I'm trying to figure out right now, actually, for a patient. Um, yeah. Seizure medication, they cannot keep on person. Um, narcotic medication, that cannot keep on person. Yeah. Um, hypertension meds, yes, yeah. they can. Um, the nurse you know, gets to know a patient, and if they feel like the patient is reliable and will take their meds, they can, they can give them their medication to keep in their cell. The ones where you're not so sure, you know, you might keep it with you. So mm-hmm. that way you have to call them out. You know if they're taking their meds. Yeah. Um, there's an officer there to check, you know, after the patient takes their medication to, you know, make sure they're not cheeking their pills, that they're actually taking really? their Really? So you pills. do the stick the tongue out thing and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. They're wow. supposed to be checking their mouth because we have sometimes patients who will cheek it yeah. or spit it out. And then hoard it. And so there are times where people may, you know, overdose on a medication because they've been stockpiling it.
0: That's, are there any of these other little things that you think I just wouldn't even imagine these things, right? Because you're thinking yep. in the inpatient setting in the hospital or the outpatient setting, you know, you just expect your, your patients to we'll take, take the, the medication. Meds. Just take the meds. Yep. Are there, is there anything else like that that you kind of have to worry about that you didn't f- picture that you would have to worry about becoming a prison doctor? Or is that the nice way to... Because you're the head. I mean, you're the top thing, but I just think prison doctor. Right, pris- I, yeah.
1: I think that's accurate okay. to say prison <laughs> doctor. Um, I... I'm sure there are right now. I'm not thinking yeah, of gotcha, them because gotcha. it's become second nature to me. It's become
0: what you do. Yeah. yeah
1: so I think that's it so would be something like when you come to do yeah. your rotation. Yes, exactly. Prison, which I'll we'll email after. Yes. Then you know I'll probably through your eyes. I'll be like, what is that? You guys do I'll be this? Like, yeah, that's right. That <laughs> that's is something amazing. that's odd about <laughs> what we do. Yeah. That's
0: so cool. Okay, so let's take a step back a little bit. Tell me in general, what do you think is the best thing? about internal medicine, about being an internal medicine doctor?
1: Um, I had mentioned the variety yeah. of things that we see. Um, I think that's definitely a plus in terms of keeping you interested. Yeah. But I think the versatility. Yeah. So when I look at my career path, you mm-hmm. know, I never imagined that mm-hmm. this is where I would be. I thought I was going to get into a practice and I was going to stay there for 30, 35 years and then I would, you know, fade off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. But here I've done... Inpatient, outpatient, nursing home, correctional medicine. I've done a lot of different things. Um, And I think that, you know, with internal medicine clinically, you have these options. Whereas if you did, if I did become ENT, I would pretty much be doing ENT.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's really interesting. And then, of course, the counterpoint to what is the best thing about internal medicine is what is the worst thing? There's nothing. There's nothing. nothing. Really? No. Nothing. Medicine. No. I, you know, I
1: <laughs> I thought it may just be that, you know, for people, the, the pay for mm-hmm. the hours, um, you know, don't—it doesn't— Match up. Yes. It doesn't match up. It, it's not what they need. It's not what they wanted. It's mm-hmm. not what they thought they were going to have a drawback to internal medicine is the the changes that have happened to medicine that don't allow you to have the connection with people that you used to have. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you are on a schedule where you might be seeing people every 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, the fact that you spend more time doing paperwork sometimes than actually spending time with the patient, yeah. um, I think those are the drawbacks. Yeah. But that's a function of how our society has changed yeah. um, than an issue with internal medicine Got it, got it. Primarily. I see. Have you,
0: again, off books here, have you ever been burnt out personally or felt burnout?
1: I have. Yeah. I actually, yes. Um, It was soon after I had my kids and I was working in the nursing home Uh and I was working part time. It was three days a week, but I was on call for my patients seven days a week. Mm. And trying to balance that with the needs of my kids, um, I felt myself getting to a point of – extreme frustration Mm. and it happened that we moved from New York to Pennsylvania at that Mm. time and I took that opportunity to say I'm going to just settle my family into Pennsylvania and I didn't find a job right away Mm. so I was off the job market for three years wow yep um I was off the job market kind of focused on taking care of my kids and tried to figure out what I wanted to do yeah and I explored all avenues. I looked into um, pharma. Yeah. Um, and I looked into like working for an insurance company. Uh-huh. Um, I looked into, uh, you know, going back to the nursing home primarily. Uh-huh. Um, I explored a lot of different things. And what I came to the conclusion was that I wasn't ready to leave clinical medicine mm-hmm. yet. So at that point, I had to figure out what kind of clinical medicine do I want to go back yeah. to. And I was fortunate enough to find a practice that allowed me to come back very, very part-time. And when I started back, I realized that, yeah, I need to do this. Um, This is, it's good for me to be doing this. So as my kids kind of needed me less because they were going to school more um, for longer parts of the day, I started increasing my Time. time.
0: I see. Okay.
1: And then... How did you make this
0: decision? Because I think it's a big decision, right? This sounds like this is something you thought about a lot. Were there any kind of specific bullet points or how did you come to the final decision of clinical, coming back to the clinic as opposed to, you know, going working for industry?
1: Um, I think I could not imagine myself sitting at a table, Mm -hmm. meeting after meeting, I would go bored out of my mind, honestly. I I kind of like the fact that, you know, when I was in a practice, yeah. even though it was every 15 minutes, at yeah. least there was something mm-hmm. different to think about and to work on. Um, and perseverating about some minute problem, yeah. you know, about how to get, you know, this drug marketed just didn't appeal to yeah.
0: me. No, that that makes complete sense. And then you think kind of because you Pulled out of that burnout, those those feelings of burnout and kind of things going, and you think it was because of those three years off, for you, not yes. off, but you know, not in full time yes. clinical setting, managing family and.
1: I think it gave me the perspective that it allowed me the opportunity to look into different things and really prioritize yeah. what was important, uh, prioritize what I wanted to do. Yeah, um, and once I kind of made the decision that if I'm going to stay in medicine. It- needs to be clinical, then the path was clear.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do you think it was, maybe not even the the, the time away, but more of a, a mental framework shift?
1: Yes. Got I it. think it, it made me put things into perspective. Got it. And I think it also coincided with where I was in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was important. Um, I think because my kids weren't needing me as much, then I was like, well, what am I going to do with myself? Yeah. So had it been a different time in my life, maybe yeah. it wouldn't have led to the path that I took, but I think everything kind of aligned.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's fantastic. So is there a common myth, or what do you think is the most common myth about a— it couldn't be an internist, it could be any internal— it could be a hospitalist, just internal medicine doctors in general. Is there anything specific that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I think when I was considering internal medicine, what I heard a lot about um, was, well— Internists are the jack of all trades, but the master of none. Um, And... It's not nice. No. It's not (laughs) nice at all. And I get why they say that, right? Because we kind of dabble in a lot of different things. But to be a good internist, you really have to have a good understanding of every subspecialty. But there's no way you can know everything about every subspecialty. But you need to know enough to... To recognize it when a patient walks in, to know what kind of testing to order to get the answers that you need. You need to know when to call your colleague and mm-hmm. refer them and when you you can kind of manage it on your own. Yeah. Um, so a really astute internist, you know, can send a patient to a consultant and be like, here's the workup. I think he has lupus. Yeah. Um, what do you think? You know, does he need to be, he or she need to be on medication, yeah. you know? So that's where I think, you know, internal medicine um, is valuable.
0: That sounds like the dream of a consult. I mean, because I I remember in, in when I was doing my inpatient hospital experience here at Jefferson, I was always so afraid to call in the consults, whether it be the cardiac. For some reason, the neurosurgery team was always the scariest to call <laughs> or the... Neurosurgery or interventional radiology, I was always oh, yeah. like, I don't know, like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> but then cardiology, nephrology, they were nice to me, so it was good. See, the
1: internal medicine subspecialties. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. That's
1: right. That makes sense now.
0: <laughs> They've been through it. They did it.
1: I get it. Yes. Oh, it exactly. all makes sense. They've all been on that phone. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah,
0: yeah. So being in, a, in this higher position, having many students under you in the past and residents under you in the past, what makes the best internal medicine resident or what makes the best kind of trainee along this track?
1: So I think when I have students with me, what I, and I'm going to start with like students, medical students or uh, NP students. Uh, What I ask them to do is work on creating and generating a differential Mm -hmm. as broad a differential as you can, because that's the basis of all the decision-making that we do. So, Learn every possible reason why someone might have abdominal pain. Mm-hmm. Learn every single reason why someone may have a headache, right? Um, and then you start, you know, crossing off things based on what they tell you, what you find on exam, what the diagnostic testing shows. But if you don't learn to create that broad differential, mm-hmm. then you're going to miss something. Yeah, I see. So that's what I get the medical students to really practice. Yeah. Um, And then I also get them to start thinking like a clinician. Most students will come to you and they'll present a pristine history. They'll give you a very detailed exam and then they stop. And I'll always ask them, so what do you want to do? I want them to tell me, this is what I think is happening. This is why I think it. And this is what I think we should do. Um, Because that's, again, how we... Well, you know, that's how we think. Yeah. That's how physicians think. So I want them to start doing that, even though they're medical students. Yeah. For residents, um, what I would tell them to do is when you are putting together all the pieces, if something doesn't make sense, you're right. There's something you're missing. Mm-hmm. So go back and think through it again. Um, dig a little bit deeper. Um, I think uh, an example of this, I have a case that we had in the prison it was a young kid, he um, came into medical several times complaining of wheezing and shortness of breath. So appropriately, he was examined and yes, they heard wheezing. So he started on an albuterol inhaler, didn't get better. Albuterol neb, didn't get better. Steroid for maintenance, didn't get better. Oral steroids, still not getting better. So at one point I had come in in the morning and they called for a stretcher and it was this kid. And they brought him down and he had some respiratory distress, you know. And so we slapped on a mask. We gave him oxygen, tried to get an oral airway. We kind of struggled with that. We don't intubate in the prison. Mm-hmm. so. But thankfully, he was stable enough to go fire rescue to the hospital. Mm-hmm. When he got there, um, they had to intubate him Um Briefly. And then they diagnosed him with pneumonia, said it was an asthma exacerbation because of pneumonia, put him on antibiotics, sent him back when he was stable with oral steroids and antibiotics. A couple days after finishing his antibiotics, um, the nurse who was up on the unit kind of heard him audibly wheezing. He hadn't come, you know, saying I'm having problems, Mm -hmm. but she heard him. So she came down and said, Dr. T, you know, he's still wheezing. So I brought him down and I'm talking to him and I said, have you had asthma your whole life? He's like, no, I've never had asthma. Mm-hmm. I said, you never had asthma. That's unusual. Usually yeah. people have had asthma for a while. He's like, no. I said, well, when did it start? He's like, it started maybe like a year ago. He's like, I was an athlete in high school. I played football. He's like, I never had a problem, you know, with exertion or even at rest. So then I was like, well, what happened a year ago? And he couldn't really tell me. So then I'm going through the rest of the history, you know, hospitalizations. Yeah, I was hospitalized. What were you hospitalized for? I overdosed. Um, Okay, you were overdosed. So were you intubated? Yeah, I was intubated. How long were you intubated for? I was intubated for a couple of days. Okay. So thinking through, you know, what's happening here. Then I examine him and yeah, I can hear wheezing, but it sounds more like Strider, not wheezing. Mm. So then I, you know, start looking through his medical records and I noticed that when he had gone to the hospital and they went to intubate him, they couldn't intubate him the normal way. They had to call anesthesia and they had to use a fiber optic scope to intubate him. So there's something in his anatomy that was precluding him being intubated. Mm. Something anatomically sounds like Strider. Mm. He's not improving with the typical treatments for asthma. Does this guy have tracheal stenosis? Mm. So, I sent him to ENT. Um, ENT examined him, looked at the records, and they sent him to the hospital, admitted him, and they actually dilated because he ended wow. up having tracheal stenosis. Wow. So, all wheezing isn't asthma. Yeah. It could be heart failure, it could be GERD, it could be tracheal stenosis. But when the story didn't make sense, yeah. a young guy, athlete, never had asthma before. You start digging deeper, and you'll find, you know, you'll find your answer.
0: Yeah, and this speaks, honestly, to your amazing skills, because they in the prison, they go to the hospital, and then they come to you, and you you solve it. You send them there, and you solve it.
1: Well, yeah, I got lucky in this case. It's not always so um, clear-cut, but, you know, I think this is what I want. I want residents— yeah. To, to do, you know, yeah. if something doesn't seem right, it probably isn't.
0: Yeah. And just to pick your brain a little bit, because I think you're at a diagnostician, diagnostician expert. Is that the kind of general framework you do? Do you come up with a broad differential and cut things out? Is it at this point just a gestalt, like, I know it's this, this kind of thing? How do you work through maybe something where you're not like, oh, it's a home run. I know it's this. Something a little bit more confusing.
1: So, yes, I go back to the basics. Yeah. You know, I try to think of... You know, what diagnosis in every organ system, you know, in heme, in in neuro, in uh, endocrine yeah. could explain what is going on in front of this, you know, in front of me. Um, And then you kind of whittle away what you think is most likely, one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you create your plan according to that. What tests will help me decide what's going on here? But I will also kind of have in the back of my mind, if this test doesn't show me this, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to go with plan Mm -hmm. B. And then this is what I'm going to do. And I'd like to communicate that, you know, in my documentation, because anyone who picks up my chart after me, I yeah. want them to know my Understand. thought process. Yes, and I think that's really important in internal medicine.
0: No, because that's that's great. What do you think, it sounds like, I'm, I think I'm answering this question just by the way you've answered the question, but what do you think are the characteristics of someone who would excel in internal medicine?
1: So I think that to be a, a good internist, you need to be one part, like Sherlock Holmes, you know, you need to be sleuthing for clues and trying to put the clues together. I think you need to be a little bit like Monica from Friends, obsessive Mm. about details. You know, why is the sodium 132? What does that mean? You know, kind of pay attention to all of those things. You need to be a little bit like house, Mm. you know, Um, someone who can look outside the box to see the big picture. Mm. And then I think you need, two parts of Mother Teresa. You need to be able to have compassion yeah. um, and understand your patient.
0: I see. No, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. And then if I was a second year or a third year, and I'm not really sure about internal medicine, I'm kind of debating OBGYN and ENT, how would you encourage them to kind of come to that decision or maybe decide against it? Is there anything that should they do more shadowing? Should they research? Should they speak to And what would you recommend?
1: I think I have to go back to the theme that I focused on yeah. when I made my decision. It's really what makes you happy. You yeah. know, what stimulates you? Um, what excites you? Um, that, That's what should be your driving yeah. force. You right. can speak to anyone and they can tell you what their experience is, but what is the experience for you?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really good point because I feel like constantly we're talking to people and asking people, and especially as medical students, and I'm sure it continues in residency and maybe even as an attending, I don't know, but we're always thinking about the next step. And we, especially people I see who go straight in, you know, they go straight through. And some, some of these Penn State kids, not you in particular, but I'm saying some, they do the ninth, they, at 19 years old, they start medical school. And you're kind of always going towards, you know, I'm going to do this, 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 but you don't stop and examine yourself. And I think it's so important, and I'm so glad you brought that up. So, given the future, where do you see the future of internal medicine?
1: So, um, I think, I think what I worry about the yeah. future of internal medicine is that we are moving away from from the patient. Um, you know, with the advent of electronic medical records. We develop that wall with the computer screen, Uh right? Um, We pay more attention to that and clicking off checkboxes, you know, um, than actually talking to our patients. Uh Um, And then now with the rise in telehealth because of COVID, there's definitely, uh, you know, so many advantages to having telehealth, Uh especially in areas that are underserved Uh with providers. They can get care that they need. But it also, again, adds another layer of distance. Yeah, um, I think you can't underplay the effect of um, the therapeutic touch. You know, it's definitely there. And if I was to, you know, advise, uh, you know, uh, people going into medicine, um, you know, one of the things I would tell them to do is step away from your computer. Mm-hmm. The biggest breakthroughs I made with patients are when I was sitting like, right in front of them, knee to knee, looking in their eyes, you know, trying to find what it is they're hiding. Um, I had a case where this woman, I couldn't get her blood pressure under control for nothing. I had her on like three or four different medications. And I was at the point of saying, I need you to see a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. Something's, you know, we need to do more testing. Um, And I noticed that she kind of dropped her eyes for a second. And that's when I stepped away from my computer. Mm -hmm. And I sat down in front of her and I said, what is going on? Now, mind you, I've known this lady for a couple of years. She's not a new patient to me. I, I knew her pretty well. Mm-hmm. She was a nurse at the local hospital. She ha- was a mom. She had a family. You know, she had everything. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that day, she, st- she just broke down. Wow. And she basically told me that she was a functioning alcoholic. Wow. And I realized that her drinking is the reason why. We had not gotten her blood pressure under control. So from what was supposed to be a 15-minute follow-up visit, it became a 30-minute, 45-minute conversation trying to convince her to go straight to rehab. And then my office staff, who was amazing, they called the rehab. They got her in, um, and she went. She went to rehab. And six months later, she came back. She was sober and no blood pressure issues. Wow. No medication. No medication.
0: No medication. Amazing.
1: But honestly, it was, you know, whatever that moment yeah. was, it wouldn't have happened yeah. if we were still kind of doing the typing. our typing.
0: And if you weren't looking at her, you would have never seen it, if right? If you weren't
1: looking at her, you wouldn't see it. So this is why it's so yeah. critical to just... Focus sometimes on, on the patient, what they're saying, what they're doing. Just look for the subtle cues yeah. in their body language that may tell you that something else is going on. It's, it's amazing.
0: I, I'm going to tell a little clinical story from when I was with you, actually, as an undergrad student. And I remember you hadn't touched this, this patient at all, by the way. We were in the outpatient office in the setting. Uh, and this lady come in, and she was a little bit—seemed a little bit nervous— and I remember you said—and you said, and you hadn't touched her at this point, anything. And, and you said, take a listen to this lady. Take a listen to her heart. And I was like, okay, I, I was—Rubs, I, Gallops, S3, S—what is—maybe there's a murmur. The wheeze, something, cardiac knock. What am I going to listen to? And I'm I'm pushing in all these different parts of her and listening to all these things. And I'm—for I'm, two minutes, I'm just like this. I'm like, it sounds so normal. It sounds so normal. What do I do? And I was like— Dr. Trevor I think she has an S3 sound. It's really soft. I don't really know. And then she's like, she, and then you were, you were just like, yeah, she's got a fast heart rate, Zach. She's just tachycardic. <laughs> Where is that? Kind of, and you hadn't touched her at this point. You hadn't even done anything. And I was like, oh, my God. And it, the problem was, I think the same thing that I was going through at that, first of all, I was freaked out in my mind. I was anxious with a patient. I, I wasn't even in med school yet. I didn't know it was going, but I didn't look at her. I didn't look at her face. I didn't talk to her. I just was behind her putting a stethoscope to the back of her chest. And she was just tachycardic, And I just, it just never came to me. So it's so true. And I think it's it's hard though, because it's especially me, right? I'm coming up through this system where it's only computers. And I've never had any of course I talk to patients and things like this, but I'm always kind of over here, like looking at the patient and kind of saying, Oh, this question here. Oh, I put that over there. Let me check the labs. And it's it's tough. I don't know how to how to fight it.
1: You know, you know where it's going to click for you, Zach, honestly, is when you get into residency and when you have those moments where, you know, overnight. I I think there's so much value to being in the hospital overnight because things are quiet. And then you get to delve into those things, you get to sit with that patient. And that's when you start cultivating those skills of observation yeah um it'll come it will definitely come i hope
0: so because it's i'm scared i'm a little bit scared but
1: here's the other thing too like you're always learning yeah you know um it's been 20 years of me doing this to learn these things right i didn't no clue i had no understanding of that when i first started so it's an evolution yeah you never stop learning um so
0: given that there Thank you, I appreciate it. Because I, I am, I'm a little afraid. I want to be, of course, the best doctor I can, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's. I'm, I'll take it step by step. First time intern year, and then I'll do javelin throwing. When yes, <laughs> given a hundred million dollars, that's what I'm going to do. So your career, you've been doing this for for a while. Mm-hmm. Any mistakes throughout your career that you would think helpful to people to bring up?
1: I don't know that it's a mistake. Got it. But okay. if I had to go back, um, I would tell myself not to stress about the little things. Um, I had uh, another patient story.
0: Yes, I love these patient stories. More of them. <laughs> Give me as many patient stories as I'm enthralled than everyone. Stories. i I think perfect. they're so
1: illustrative, right? So I had a um, student, um, she, a patient of mine, a young lady who was a medical student. Mm-hmm. Um, and she came in to see me one day um, and said, I need you to prescribe me Xanax. I can't. I'm getting so anxious when I have to sit and take a test. So... I was like, sure, if that's what you need, we'll get that for you. But why? You know, you've been taking tests your whole life. So what happened all of a sudden that now you need Xanax? You know, and not only have you taken tests, you've succeeded Mm -hmm. for you to get to this point in your life. Exactly. So, you know, we're talking about it and, you know, she's like, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. And then I find out that a couple months ago, she had taken a test, I think, in microbiology Ooh. and she had gotten, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nightmares. <laughs> um, and she had gotten like a B minus. And she's like, you know, ever since then, I just, I find myself, you know, getting really anxious. And my heart starts racing, blah, blah, blah. And I said, so you got a B minus. So what? And she looked at me like I was crazy. I said, Did you flunk out of med school? No. Did you not pass your class? No. Are you going to finish med school? Yeah. Are you going to become a doctor? Yeah. So why are you stressing about this B minus? I said, you know, your your grade is not an indication of what kind of doctor you're going to be. Such a good statement. Yes. And, you know, that's, you know, that's what you have to understand. These are just little milestones. Um, so what we ended up doing, I obviously didn't give her Xanax. Mm-hmm. Um, she came back a few months later and said she did take her test, that she was fine. She was able to take her USMLE, I'll all that like, other stuff, yeah. and she was okay. But I was that girl, uh-huh, you know, I that see. was me. If I could go back and talk to myself, I would tell myself not to worry mm-hmm. about that. Enjoy the freaking journey, you know. It's an amazing experience yeah. to go through medical school, to, to learn from... From your patients, from your teachers, you know that that should be enjoyed. Yeah, as hard as it is, and how overwhelming it can be, it's still an incredible experience. Yeah,
0: and I, we, we're in such a special position to be able to kind of be with these patients at such a time. It's. It's, it's just it's so fun. It's the classic med student, right? I got mm-hmm. a B minus. I'm going to fail. Yep. Nothing's going to go right. I'm gonna I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be kicked. It's so classic. And I just want to repeat what you said. Bad grades don't mean you're not going to be a doctor. It's something like if you get a C, you're still a doctor. If you get a B, you're exactly. still a doctor. If you get an A, you're still a doctor. And also, I think there are even some studies that show the correlation. Of course, it's association. We don't know if it's a cause or something like this. But the actual association between grades and uh, subjective performance of the doctor from patients, there's no real relation. There's no significant difference or factor from that. So who knows?
1: I think what matters is how you show up at the bedside. Yeah you know, that's what really matters. That's all your patient cares about. So, yeah.
0: No, it's huge. Well, this has been fantastic. I just want to leave one more opportunity. Do you have any closing words or any closing advice whatsoever to people that are interested in, this could be people that are interested in internal medicine. This could be people that are going into the field of medicine in general. This could be just anyone. This could be Spear throwers. Any <laughs> Was it not javelin throwers? Javelin it throwers. Javelin. Javelin it throwers, was javelin. Javelin yeah. throwers. Not anyone. shot put, not, not discus. No. It was javelin. Yeah. Anything at all.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, one of the things I've learned through the years is You have to value and respect your nursing staff. They are your eyes and ears when you can't be there. So, and on top of that, they do the grunt work. They do the dirty work of delivering care. So, be kind to your nurses, you know, show them the respect. Um, The other thing I would say is to wear your humility like your white coat. Mm. You will never know everything. You will not always be right. And there will be times when you get it wrong. Mm own it just simply own that And I think finally um, your greatest teacher isn't going to be an attending it's not going to be a textbook it's not going to be an app it's your patient So do everything you can to learn from them.
0: Awesome those are perfect words to close on And normally I, there's a spot here for plugs but you you want to plug your Twitter or your Instagram your new YouTube channel your nothing. Come work in prison. Come work in prison. Come That's work in perfect. prison, yes. Perfect way to end. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Trivichram. This has been amazing and I think really helpful and interesting as well to students.
1: Thank you so much for this opportunity. I, re- I really appreciate it. I
0: really appreciate you coming. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's great. Fantastic.